This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines on ABC's Radio National, helping you make sense of Australia's place in the world. Today, a blast from the past, Thatcherism and Reaganomics. Should Australia's leaders today draw inspiration from the Iron Lady? But what the Honourable Member is saying is that he were rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. And should we follow the great communicator? Common sense told us that when you put a big tax on something, the people will produce less of it. So we cut the people's tax rates and the people produced more than ever before. This week, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said the kind of free market policies associated with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan could help Australia recover from the COVID recession. Are tax cuts and deregulation the way forward? Stay tuned for a debate later in the show. But first, Osman Talks. Well, every year, Australia and the US hold a ministerial consultation between Defence and Foreign Affairs Ministers. It's known as Osman. The backdrop to this year's talks is a series of escalating events and rhetoric on everything from Hong Kong's new national security laws, territorial claims in the South China Sea, cyber attacks and theft, the closure of consulates in the United States and China, Uh, The list goes on. Meanwhile, our Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham, he can't even get his Chinese counterpart in Beijing to return his calls. But the deeper issue on the agenda was a choice. The US was hoping Australia would throw everything in with the US and officially cast China as a strategic rival. Now, the test of that was whether Australia would join the US in freedom and navigation patrols. But Australia has not explicitly committed to the patrols, but it has not refused to do them either with Foreign Minister Maurice Payne stressing that Canberra makes foreign policy in its own national interest. Let's turn to our panel. Alan DuPont is one of Australia's leading defence strategists and is the author of a new paper, Mitigating the New Cold War, Managing US-China Trade, Tech and Geopolitical Conflict. It's published by the Centre for Independent Studies, which I head. And Jeff Raby was Australia's ambassador to China from 2007 to 2011, and he's the author of China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in the New Global Order. That's forthcoming from Melbourne University Press. And I started by asking Jeff what he made of the Osman negotiations in Washington this week. Well, it was obviously a big statement that uh, the Australian government made by sending two ministers to Washington during the time of uh, the COVID-19 uh, particularly given the chaotic nature of the uh, US response to the COVID-19 and the disciplined nature by comparison of Australia's response, uh, the message very much was that uh, we are comrades in arms and um, uh, we want to uh, go out of our way to reinforce that message on every occasion, which was done by their visit. Well, Alan, uh, the United States under both Obama and uh, the Trump administrations, they, they did press Canberra to join these phone ops, the Freedom of Navigation patrols around the disputed islands in the South China Sea. I noticed that Labor's shadow defence minister, Richard Miles, thinks that phone ops should very much be on the table. Do you think our refusal, so far at least, is about China or about the United States? Yes, I wouldn't say that we've actually refused. We've hedged a little bit, um, but I think it's entirely possible that we may conduct uh, freedom of navigation operations in the future, but perhaps we'll do it in a in a slightly different way to a lot of people expect. So, I mean, I argue consistently that 
it is important to conduct these phone ops in the South China Sea to assert two important principles of international law that China, in my view, has clearly breached. The first thing is that the claim that these artificial islands that they've militarised entitles them to 12 nautical miles territorial sea is not supported in international law. So we need to demonstrate that by sailing ships through that area or flying over it. The second uh, claim that China makes to 80% of the South China Sea has no basis in international law. That's just not my opinion. That is the opinion of the eminent jurists of the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. So by all measures, I think that China has been has not only illegally occupied these islands, but it's also illegally claimed uh, you know, large amounts of sea around them as well. And I think we need to do something about that and just talking about it is not enough. So but we need to do it in a smart way. I don't believe that we should suddenly launch some kind of freedom of navigation operation next week, but perhaps in collaboration with other countries like the United States and Japan, potentially others as well, we should exercise in the region and we should sail through those areas uh, when it suits us to do so. Well, Beijing was very upset with Australia supporting the Americans on this question of China's illegal conduct in the South China Sea. Alan DuPont makes the point that the Hague Tribunal in 2016, four years ago, made it very clear that China's conduct is illegal. So um, why is China so worked up about this when they're uh, wrong in the court of uh, international law? Jeff Raby. Well, I mean, these are very long-standing claims by the Chinese, and they made it very clear that they wouldn't participate in that uh, judicial process, and that is a right under the um, under the law of, uh, law of the sea. It's interesting, of course, that the US is not a signatory uh, to that particular set of legal obligations and really has no uh, legal standing in this issue. Um, so for us to do uh, freedom of navigation operations in uh with the United States is, I think, quite an unnecessarily provocative act. Uh, If we wanted to do uh, those sorts of operations, then we may like to look at the region and cooperating with other countries in the region. I doubt any of them would join us. Um, Alan mentioned doing exercises in the area. Well, we've we've just done exercises. But again, it's interesting. Whilst we had five uh, assets as part of the uh, US group, uh, Japan only contributed one, yet its uh, naval assets are vastly greater than ours. Countries in the region are nuancing how they deal with this issue and responding accordingly. Uh, a hairy chested sort of sail through uh, these particular waters does nothing other than put us in danger in a very provocative uh, move. And the risks of confrontation are considerable. Kishore Mabobani, past guest on this show, he says that China is bound to be the world's most powerful economy, that many Chinese feel at long last they're in a position to command the respect and consideration they deserve. So from Beijing's perspective, Alan Dupont, the more powerful it becomes economically, the more likely it will grow its strategic reach uh, in areas on which its future security and prosperity depends. That's the Mabubani argument. That's clearly the argument in Beijing. They say that's how rising great powers, including the United States in the 19th century, that's how they think and behave. So given all of this and everything that Jeff Raby just said, Alan, won't attempts to deny China a sphere of influence, won't they be counterproductive? Yes, I, I take a different view. I mean, my this is very much 19th century thinking about spheres of influence. And uh, I think that surely we've moved beyond that in the 21st century where 
it's perfectly reasonable for China to assert its influence in, in you know, according to a rules-based system rather than use its muscle, uh, either militarily or even to weaponise trade, to achieve what it wants. So this is the might is right kind of approach uh, to international affairs. And you know, hopefully we've all moved beyond that. So no one's denying China the right to have influence in the world consonant with its size and its economic power. That's that, I don't think that's really seriously at issue here. Don't think anyone is actually trying to contain China, although China likes to think that other countries are. But it's about drawing some lines about what is acceptable behaviour by any rising power. Uh, and China, I, I, I feel, has breached a lot of those what I call reasonable limits uh, in terms of interfering in, in the affairs of other countries, in terms of what is done in the South China Sea, and we, all those things that you listed at the start of the program, those things are not consistent with a law-abiding country. And I think that's where Australia is quite right to stand up and say, well, look, we don't agree with what China's doing, and we're prepared to assert our rights in, 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 a, in a reasonable way, which is what I think the, the uh, Morrison government's doing. It's been, generally speaking, quite measured in its response. It hasn't been provocative in its rhetoric, perhaps like the United States, and it's it's basically made it quite clear that we will, we'll pursue our own interests in our own way. My guests are Alan Dupont and Jeff Raby. Uh, Jeff, does Alan Dupont have a point here? I mean, why do you think Beijing has grown more belligerent since the coronavirus? Is it because China feels strong or because President Xi is vulnerable? Uh Good points. Um, uh, it could be both. Uh, but um, I just wanted to go back on something Alan uh, said. I think we now have a Pompeo doctrine, and Pompeo is very clear it's about containing China, and more than that, uh, returning China to what Pompeo views as China's rightful place. Uh, and the statements of the last couple of weeks, particularly the one last week at the Nixon Library, lays out a, an agenda for a new Cold War that goes way beyond uh, the sorts of things we're talking about this morning, Tom, to uh, uh, Christian values, um, freedom of religion, a whole range of issues that would trouble many countries around the world. So I think we need to get in the right sort of context where a lot of this is happening. Now, as for China's belligerence through um, through COVID-19, yeah, it, it could be feeling cocky and confident. If you look at the countries where it's, um, uh, if you like, rubbed against in the last uh, few months, each of them are ones that the United States has also been cultivating in its new uh, push to uh, contain China. Uh, Vietnam, of course, Japan's there. Uh, the US has put a lot of attention on India. And I think the message there really is to those countries from Beijing. Um, the US will prove to be an unreliable uh, partner if you push too hard in this area. So I suspect there's a bigger geopolitical strategic agenda uh, operating. As for Xi's weakness domestically, well, uh, we'll only know after he's either after he's removed or, or not. Uh, the system's so opaque. Alan, Jeff mentions the uh, containment word, and uh, many people believe that more nations in the region are rallying to the US position because they're worried about that China's rise will threaten their integrity. Uh, is that why you think we're in a new Cold War? Well, look, uh, let me just say a couple of things. First of all, I don't personally support some of the language that, that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, used last week in his criticisms of China. I thought it was unnecessarily provocative, and to some extent I agree with Jeff on this. However, the core position of the US on China, I think, is the right one in the sense that the US is pushing back after a long period of I think, accommodation of China's interests, pushing back because China has been 
as I said, weaponizing a lot of the uh, a lot of its its state power in ways that are unacceptable, not just to the US but to the West more generally. So, so if you don't comply with China's wishes. You you have trade sanctions, uh, you know, levied against you as we have in Australia, etc. Okay, so the point I'm making is that I don't see this as the US provoking China so much as responding to some provocations that have occurred over quite a long period of time across the board. It's not only the US feels that way; Australia and many other countries do as well. Um, okay, it's much more difficult for smaller countries like Australia to confront China because there's a disparity of power. So I just wanted to say that up front. Um, now, as far as the Cold War goes, look, the, the key point I want to make is, yes, I do think we are in the foothills of a new Cold War. There are striking parallels with the first Cold War, but there are obviously differences. But the key parallel is that it's a contest between the two major states in the system, but one is a liberal democracy and the other is authoritarian. And so there is an ideological dimension to this that you don't always see when rising powers challenge incumbent states. And it's consistent with what happened in the first Cold War between the Soviet Union and, and the United States. So it's a systemic competition that is not just between the US and China, it's drawing in the rest of the world. And that's the big problem for us all. How do we manage this? Um, a lot of us are caught between the US and China, and Australia is a classic example of that. How do we actually manage a way out of this, but stick to our principles and core interests? That's the big $64 question for Australia. Alan Dupont is from the Cognoscenti Group, and Jeff Raby is a former Australian ambassador to China. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, this week, Josh Frydenberg called for a Thatcher-Reagan-style agenda to restore Australia's prosperity in the post-COVID economy. Here's the Treasurer with David Spears on the ABC's Insiders. Thatcher and Reagan cut red tape, they cut taxes and they delivered stronger economies. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg with the ABC's David Spears. Now, to get two views on Thatcherism, Reaganomics, and whether tax cuts and deregulation are the way forward for the Australian economy, let's turn to Emma Dawson. She's Executive Director of Per Capita. That's a left-leaning think tank in Melbourne. And John Roscombe is Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, a right-leaning think tank also in Melbourne. Emma, John, welcome back to Between the Lines. Hello, Tom. Hey, Tom. Good to be here. Uh, John Roskam, let's start with you. Writing in The Guardian, Van Badham says, quote, the new neoliberal erosion of wages, services, government investment and job security further enriched the already rich at their expense. Uh, why then, John, are you an admirer of the Thatcher and Reagan economic reforms? Because, Tom, those reforms led to growth, led to opportunity. Inflation is a tax on poor people. Their reforms reduced inflation, unemployment came down. And the point about inequality is important, but we have to remember that's just one measure of economic performance. And the reality is inequality is greatest in poor economies, uh, not in wealthier ones. And what Reagan and Thatcher did was they reversed the decline, they slayed the dragon of stagflation, and they gave people opportunities that they didn't have. 
Emma, does that all suggest to you that Thatcherism and Reaganomics were an economic and political success? Politically, obviously, because they won these elections and their political offspring were Tony Blair's New Labor and the Bill Clinton's uh, uh, New Democrats. So was it an economic success too? Look, I think uh, to some extent, certainly they did uh, tackle the, the twin crises of you know high inflation and higher um, unemployment, known as stagflation. Um, to go to the political success argument first, um, I would argue actually that both Tony Blair and Bill Clinton took more of their lessons from our Hawke and Keating governments in the 80s, who of course also um, massively modernised our economy by getting rid of tariffs and quotas and um, a lot of the kind of uh, dominant monopolies that had emerged after the Second World War, but did it in a way um, that was much less damaging for working class and middle class communities um, than was done in uh, the US and the UK under Reagan and Thatcher. So the economic success of those um, programs uh, was seen in certainly in the, um, the aggregate wealth of those nations, but the distribution of that wealth became much more unequal. And we saw particularly in um, working class communities in you know, Detroit and other areas of the US and in the north of England, in those mining towns, um, communities that were left with intergenerational scarring, um, intergenerational unemployment, and really have not recovered this day and we were very fortunate uh, that we had a government here that brought the working and middle classes with us on that deregulation agenda. Uh, does Emma Dawson have a point, John Roscombe, that uh, Hawke and Keating uh, modified substantially those hard edges of Thatcher and Reagan? They did to some extent but don't forget Keating gave us the recession we had to have and gave us a million unemployed. Um, I think the argument about Reagan and Thatcher goes less to inequality and less to unemployment, uh, which both of them brought down dramatically, and it goes more to the mixed part of their legacy, which the US and the UK are still suffering from, which is while Reagan and Thatcher cut tax they didn't cut the size of government. Um, the challenge for Reagan was to reduce government debt, was to reduce deficits, um, and that's what the US is suffering from now. If there's a criticism I'd make of Reagan, it is not about inequality because inflation uh, widens inequality more than anything else. It is about the fact that uh, some of his rhetoric about reducing the size of government, he didn't deliver on, whereas, as Emma said, uh, Keating and Hawke did. Okay, well, Emma, just bring this back to the present because uh, Frydenberg's defenders, and I assume John's one of them, uh, they say that the tax cuts, the deregulation, which were sort of the, the Reagan-Thatcher agenda, if you like, that's precisely what we need now to re-energise the Australian economy once we pass the pandemic. Your response? I couldn't disagree more with that, Tom. Um, we are not facing the same issues that we faced at the end of the 1970s around the world. Um, our economy and our labour market looks very, very different now than it did then. Even before this crisis, we had um, persistently low levels of inflation. It was very hard to get inflation up and it's missed its target. Uh, the RBA has missed its inflation target repeatedly over the last uh, six or seven years. Um, and while unemployment was, you know, hovering between five and five and a half percent, which was traditionally seen as, as the, the right rate. Um, the RBA had been saying for a couple of years now that it needed to be uh, closer to four. Um, I'd argue even lower than that. And the real problem has been underemployment and underutilisation. So we're facing a very different um, economy. And even the Productivity Commission, you know, has said uh, there aren't really any big payoffs now to be made um, for the Australian economy in terms of productivity by further deregulation 
manipulating our labour market, mm. that actually Australia comparatively has a, a very flexible, responsive um, labour market that responds to economic cycles and that those uh, those agendas of cutting taxes for the wealthy, and let's remember that Reagan and Tat uh, Thatcher's tax cuts were, were overwhelmingly aimed at the, the the higher income earners, and of deregulating the labour force further won't see those productivity gains, and it will exacerbate the problem that we're seeing in this pandemic of too many workers not being able to take time off because they don't have sick pay, and those real um, problems that are emerging in our economy because of the um, going too far in deregulating the labour market. If you just tuned in, you're on Between the Lines, the show that puts contemporary international issues into a broader context. My guests are Emma Dawson from Per Capita and John Roskam from the IPA, and we're debating the Thatcher and Reagan legacies. Now, within 24 hours of Frydenberg's insider's interview, uh, Scott Morrison, he appeared to rebuff the Treasurer for suggesting a Thatcher-Reagan agenda or style agenda could inspire the government's economic recovery plan. He said... Prime Minister, we're leading an Australian response to this, a uniquely Australian response. Uh, John Roskam, does this indicate that uh, Middle Australia in 2020 are in a completely different uh, mindset about uh, the nature of uh, productivity enhancing economic reforms, or at least the kind that Josh Frydenberg is hinting that he might float? Tom, I agree with you. I think there's a lot to what you say. I think 30 years of uninterrupted prosperity uh, has made us complacent and I think we have forgotten that those 30 years of prosperity were built on the neoliberal uh, reforms of people such as Thatcher and Reagan and, as Emma said, uh, Hawke and Keating and Howard here in Australia. Um, I think it also indicates from the Prime Minister a lack of a willingness um, to debate these big issues and and one of the challenges that the centre-right has always had is that it's, it's policies that lead to prosperity, but they're never given credit for those policies. And unless we can talk about the scourge of inflation, about how do you get unemployment down, about uh, the fact that red tape is now Australia's largest industry, um, we're not going to be undertaking the reforms that we need um, to get unemployment down and, for example, get young people uh, into jobs. And I, for one, was very disappointed that the Prime Minister uh, didn't want to talk about uh, the benefits of prosperity, cutting taxes, cutting red tape um, and undertaking productivity reforms exactly as Thatcher and Reagan did. Well, uh, Emma, I mean, John and uh, the Financial Review, for instance, are, are among others saying that we desperately need a reform agenda that consists of lower taxation and lower regulation because their argument is that that will sharpen incentives for the private sector to grow the economy. I mean, do they have a point that higher taxation and regulations are barriers to wealth creation? No, the problem with that argument is that there's no evidence that that has occurred um, over the last, certainly the last decade or 12 years since the GFC. Um, all of the growth in GDP in Australia since the GFC has really come from two things, which is high prices for our minerals exports and immigration. Um, the 
standard of living, the per capita GDP, so to, so to speak, has been stubbornly stagnant or even declining. Um, there's no evidence that Trump's tax cuts for high income earners and, and business in America have flowed through in, uh, into wages growth or into productivity gains. They've been hoarded and they've been used for share buybacks. Um, now we've already actually gone down this path in Australia. Um, Scott Morrison introduced as treasurer and then backed up as prime minister a series of tax cuts, stages one, two and three, um, that will massively flatten our you know, progressive income tax scale and the overwhelming benefit of those cuts, particularly stage three, will go to high income earners and all of the economic literature will tell you that if you um, if you give money to the top decile or the top 10 or 20% of income earners, they're much less likely to spend it into the economy than are those at the bottom. So I would be in favour of some tax cuts for low and middle income earners more than that are on the table now, but of repealing that stage three and using um, that, you know, $141 billion over 10 years is the cost of those stage three tax cuts, using that to lift the incomes of uh, low paid workers to um, permanently increase the rate of job seeker and to fix employment services in this country and to create jobs so that people aren't stuck on job seeker for months and years at a time. And given everything that Emma's just said, John Roskam, why cut the rate of these income support payments when unemployment will rise dramatically? Because we need to focus on getting people into jobs uh, and we need to focus on intergenerational debt. And I certainly hear what Emma says about tax cuts, but there's a couple of points to make. One is um, giving people back their own money is not giving them money. It is their own income they have earned. And this is one of the big differences between the left and the right, which I think Reagan and Thatcher understood, which is cutting taxes is not the government giving people money. It is allowing people to keep their own money. The other point about where the benefits of income tax reductions accrue to is the fact that um, wealthier people, higher income earners, pay the majority of tax. That's why they will get the benefit of tax cuts. And in Australia, um, we it is difficult when we have a situation whereby now something like the majority of households pay no net tax, where the top 1% and 10% of income earners are paying ever-growing proportions of tax. And the record is that um, tax cuts do produce growth and, and Australia's economic performance has stagnated for the last decade um, because we've done very little of the things that we should be doing. The tax cuts that we're talking about are relatively minor. And Reagan and Thatcher would say amen to that, but Emma, where, where do the critics such as yourself, where do you expect to find the money in the post-COVID economy? Mm. Reagan and Thatcher would often say you don't tax a loss, you only tax a profit and without profit you can't raise the revenue to provide for things like health and education and welfare and infrastructure that society demands. Look, there's a number of things to unpack there. And the first thing is I'd acknowledge what John said about the difference between the left and the right when it comes to taxation. And effectively, that argument that tax is people's own money, um, is it rests on the, the classic Thatcher quote that there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. Um, and I think one thing this crisis has shown us is there is such a thing as society. We're all deeply interconnected and, and, and reliant on one another. And the role of good services, um, you know, universal services, um, are really important in, in our social cohesion and in, in protecting our, our fellow Australians and fellow human beings from the ravages of things such as this disease and the economic um, depression it's wrought. As 
to where the money comes from, well, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a Keynesian in this regard. And when we are facing a depression, the likes of which we haven't seen for almost a hundred years, and at the same time, our fiscal position going into this was relatively strong, we can now borrow, government can borrow money, um, at an interest rate that is so far below inflation that it's effectively borrowing it for free. The last thing we need to worry about at this point in time is government debt. Actually, private debt in Australia is a much bigger threat to our recovery because we have highly indebted households who are unlikely to get out and spend, and consumer spending is the bulk of economic activity in this country. So the government has to lead the way here um, by investing directly in people's jobs. Um, and as to the sort of suggestion that there's no that we should uh, reduce those income support payments because the issue is getting people back into work, I agree. I think people should be on JobSeeker for as short a time as possible. The problem is right now there's 13 people competing for every job in the marketplace and there was some data out on the weekend showing you have a 1 in 275 chance of getting a white-collar uh, white job in the current market. So the task for government now is job creation and we're not seeing a plan for genuine job creation. The private sector is not going to be able to do that heavy lifting given how bashed around it's been by the shutdown of the economy. Emma Dawson is from Per Capita and John Roscombe is from the Institute of Public Affairs, both Melbourne public policy think tanks. Well, that's it for another week with me, Tom Switzer, here on ABC's Radio National. Now, you can catch up with the past programs on your favourite podcast app or the homepage. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to the show. It's between the lines. This is Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.